So we're continuing in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is our second week to look at 2 Corinthians. I think we'll be in 2 Corinthians for a long time to come. There's a 15th century Dutch theologian named Erasmus. He's a special person. But he had a wonderful perspective on Paul. He read and studied the Bible, especially the writings of Paul, uh, with great fervency. He loved theology. He loved study. One thing I could relate to kind of resonated with me. Uh, He said that when he gets a little money, he buys books. And if anything is left, he buys food and clothes. That's a man who loves to study. But when speaking about 2 Corinthians in particular, he summarizes the character of this letter, I think, better than anyone else that I've read. He says 2 Corinthians is like a river that flows in a gentle stream. Sometimes it rushes down as a torrent, bearing all before it. Sometimes it's spreading out like a placid lake. Sometimes losing itself in the sand. And then breaking out in its fullness in some other unexpected place. That's 2 Corinthians. Why is 2 Corinthians like this? As we discussed last week, Paul is addressing some serious problems in culture. But we also see that Paul is a broken man. His emotions are raw. This church has wounded him. And he's burdened for the church as a grieving and concerned pastor. He loves them. So it's not the most methodical of all Paul's letters. Like the book of Romans, a a letter written specifically to declare theological truth, at least for the first 11 or 12 chapters. But 2 Corinthians is different in a way that it shows a great love and compassion in all of Paul's brokenness for that church and those special people. He also, at times, shows great anger toward those who would disturb the church's purity and peace. So, that describes, I think, some of the reasons why the nature of the book, the nature of the writing, if we were to read through the whole book, you would see that torrent. You would see that peaceful river. You would see that, that the water just gently flowing into the sand and then exploding out into some other unexpected place. We would see that if we read the entire book. But we're not. We're going to dive head first into the first Two verses. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now. We ask that the truth of your word would be illuminated in our minds, that you would impress it upon our hearts, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first two verses, what could I possibly talk about in those first two verses? Well, we're going to talk about Paul's calling and how this relates to us and our calling. 
by God's grace. I hope to explain Paul's calling, Paul's accountability, his fellowship, if you will. And thirdly, we'll talk about his church. Paul's calling, his fellowship or accountability, and his church. So the first thing we notice in this letter is the nature of the greeting. It has all the elements of all of the greetings in the beginning of all of Paul's letters. It's a helpful, uh, it's a helpful thing to go and read the very first three or four verses of every one of the letters Paul wrote. Because you see some recurring themes. The greeting that you see in 2 Corinthians is about the same as you see in most all of the letters. Galatians maybe being a, a slightly an exception in that he's got a different attitude when he writes the church in Galatia. But it's all basically the same. He identifies himself with his calling as an apostle. He identifies the companions if there's anyone with him. And then he identifies exactly who the letter is to. We see these things in almost all of them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church, that is, church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Paul's calling is to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Why does he start with this? It's because he's speaking the word of God. He's writing with the authority of God as an apostle of God. And his word is to be received in that same vein. By them at that time and by us today. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he explicitly says this. He says, we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica that when he preached to them, they were hearing God's word. Not his own word, but God's word. As an apostle, he spoke from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't Paul propping himself up or boasting in some way, saying, hey, you have to listen to me. I'm an apostle. You have to do this. God's chosen me to be a little bit above you, a little bit better. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he is an apostle chosen by God. And this is different and it's special. For Paul, this is humbling. And in all of his letters, he communicates something of this calling. He either refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, he uses both. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So why would he mention by the will of God? This is a reference to his conversion. Do you remember that? His conversion. What was he doing when he was converted to God? He was walking toward Damascus to persecute the church the followers of Jesus Christ in Damascus. And he met Jesus on the road. So when he mentions that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
He knew Christ Jesus personally. Christ Jesus met him, threw him down, blinded him, and spoke to him, and rebuked him, and converted him. Later he was told he must take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Paul later explains the impact of this conversion. It changed him forever, as you can imagine. Paul, who was probably among the most learned people in all of Israel, two or three PhDs in Old Testament, in Hebrew, in theology, he thought he knew everything and God crushed him. Everything he thought he knew was flipped on its head. He explains this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. Here are a few selections from that passage. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any man. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. We know that Paul was in Arabia. Arabia at that time was basically everywhere from about Damascus down through the Arabian Peninsula. So it was more expansive in the the way that Paul uses the word. It's the way it was understood, Arabia, in the first century. But what he's saying is for three years, I was being taught by God. And you can imagine what must have happened. Paul loved his books. He loved his scrolls. He loved the word of God. And he got all this stuff. And he said, Lord, show me now what all of it really means. He probably went through all of the scriptures, being trained by the Spirit of Jesus. Probably spent a lot of time in solitary study and prayer, but we also see in the book of Acts that in this time of study and prayer, he's also preaching in Damascus. But all of the great learning and all the great study, it all came to life, maybe for Paul, for the very first time. Such was his calling. I think many of you have probably had a similar experience, either in your conversion or in God opening your eyes to some wonderful truth of Scripture for the first time. Uh, If you're like me, the first time you saw the doctrines of grace, it's like it exploded on on the page of Scripture every time you put your eyes on it, even though you had read the texts many times before. Maybe you learned the Bible fairly well, like Paul. Maybe you knew the details of Scripture. But when you saw for the first time that God was sovereign in all things, especially in your salvation, it changed. Everything changed. This is maybe a little bit of what happened to Paul. Paul also probably realized that when Christ came to him on the road, it wasn't because he was a good person. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't born into it, as John 1.12 tells us. It's not because of his own intellect or because he made a good decision or figured it all out. God saved him, rather, in spite of his intellect, in spite of his reason, 
in spite of all of his righteousness before God in his own eyes. Similarly, if God saved you, you know that he did the same. He brought you from death to life, not because you're smart, not because you're righteous, but in spite of your smartness, in spite of your wisdom and righteousness in your own eyes. When you realize, like Paul, that you deserve nothing but wrath and death, you could never come one step closer to God in and of yourself. It's impossible. Ephesians 2 tells us that you're spiritually dead before God opens your eyes. That's why it's called grace, an unmerited gift. Paul knew when he wrote those words that that's exactly what happened to him. He was saved by grace. God converted him on that road because he loved him. What a joy it produced in Paul. What a steadfastness it produced in Paul to continue on, to continue through the years, through all the suffering and tribulation, doing what God wanted him to do. Where did that come from? His knowledge that God had saved him. A knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel. He recognized his own previous hatred of God and now his great love for God. We all probably have this experience in our lives at some time. Paul was completely changed. So whenever he writes a letter, he wants everyone to know he's an apostle, but he's called by God. I.e., remember how I was converted. This was amazing. And God has specifically called me to preach to you, Paul is saying. So you should listen because I speak the very words of God. He wasn't like the other teachers or preachers, these false teachers that were bothering all the churches. He specifically wants them to know. He's been called to preach the word of God by the will of God. The application for our salvation, I think, is clear. All those of us who love Jesus Christ have had a moment when we were spiritually dead and then we become spiritually alive. Sometime in our life, this, this happens. Some of you, you don't even know when it happened. Let's say, if you're like me, you were raised in the church. Your parents taught you diligently the scriptures. You knew the gospel. And there's never a time in your life where you can remember not wanting to serve God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. This is the normal way we expect covenant children to come to faith. They're inundated with the word of God, the teaching of God, their whole lives. In their whole lives, they want to serve God. But sometime in that process, God is changing their hearts. Sometime in that process, there's a moment when they're spiritually dead and they become spiritually alive. God produces faith in that child at some time that might be almost imperceptible to the outside world. And yet still, they go from death to life. Others of you, though, were saved as, an, as adults. So you know the wickedness that was in your heart because you remember that. You remember your rebellion against God. You remember running as far from God as possible. Immersing your life in worldliness and sin. Your desires before God were so far from God that when your affections changed, you knew that it was a work of the Spirit. 
You knew that something in you had changed. And this was not anything that you drummed up. This was the Holy Spirit changing your life. You knew that your new love for God was real, that it wasn't of yourself, and that your affection and love for Jesus was real. But just like everyone else who comes to faith, there's a time when you're dead, spiritually dead, and the Holy Spirit brings you to spiritual life and gives you faith. Paul knew this as well. It was more dramatic for him because Jesus met him face to face, blinded him, crushed his soul, and regenerated his heart all at about the same time. So we all know that if we're saved, we're saved by the will of God. Like Paul, we're owned by Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's given us work to do on this earth by the will of God. You're in Christ by the will of God. You're at Meadow Creek Presbyterian Church by the will of God. You've been given a ministry in our community to do by the will of God. Well, no, Richard, you're the minister. No, actually, I equip you for ministry. That's the the duty of the elders and the pastor, to equip you to do the work of ministry. So you're all here by the will of God to do His work on this earth. So for this reason... Knowing God's will for us, we rejoice always and we pray without ceasing. And with everything we give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I used to frustrate my children when they would think about the future. I don't know what I should do. Should I go to school? Should I do this thing? Should I date this person? Should I marry this person? What's the will of God for my life, Daddy? Well, I think I know certainly what the answer to this question is. The will of God for your life is to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing and in everything to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I know that's a facetious answer, but it's true. That was the will of God for their lives and for yours. Paul knew that he was saved and called to be an apostle by the will of God. That's his calling. Secondly, look at his accountability. Look at his friends. He mentions Timothy, his brother. Later, he mentions Silvanus in this letter. And Paul always mentions, often in the very first verses of his letters, those men who God had brought to him to help him in his ministry, to partner with him. In this letter, it's Timothy whom he mentions. So I want you to step back for a moment and ask yourself why. Remember, Paul is being accused of not being a very good apostle, not being a very good preacher, not being a very good pastor. He's weak in his speech. He doesn't say things the way he should. He's not as persuasive as he could be. This is what the Corinthian church is accusing him of, at least some of them. So you would think that Paul would want to, in his flesh, lift up himself and say, look, I'm different from everybody. Certainly he's an apostle called by God. We know that. But his humility is such that he also brings Timothy right into the picture from the very beginning. Paul knows that he's called to serve God in a special way as an apostle. He's been gifted in many ways. He's personally singled out by Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't stand on this prestige of his calling His position, his reputation, his authority, like the false teachers. He's not jealously guarding 
his reputation in front of them. Rather, it seems that he wants to share all of the earthly glory he's been given with his brothers, with Timothy, with Silvanus, with the others, with Apollos, with Peter. And that's why he mentions those who are with him in almost every letter. So when you consider that Paul's being accused of not being really that good, and when you consider that instead of Paul pushing himself to the very front, he always includes his brothers, you see the humility of the man and his great dependence upon God and the ordinary means of grace. Fellowship with brothers being one of the the ways that God uses to bring us all to a greater knowledge of himself. He's a humble man, and his transparency is very special. He knew his own weakness, and he knew he needed brothers to walk beside him. And through this letter especially, you'll notice that he uses us and our. He's talking about his brothers that are with him in ministry. Not just in this letter, but in all of his letters. He needs these men who would help him through the difficulties of ministry. And Timothy was one of these people that was given by God to help Paul do his work. He's sharing the credit with Timothy. And he lifts up Timothy in front of the church. So as I was preparing this particular message, uh, I read, probably with many of you, it's kind of a grieving Report, but a brother, a friend for the kingdom of God um, in Dallas, a Southern Baptist pastor whom I really admire, Matt Chandler, was disciplined by his church and removed from ministry. We don't know how long. The elders removed him from preaching and teaching. And again, I'm... I'm bringing this up not to disparage him, but it happened, and it was public, and he announced it. So I feel like it's worthy of discussing with you. There was no sexual misconduct, he said, but he was disciplined for text messages with another woman who wasn't his wife. Chandler, in speaking to his church, said, quote, It was a frequency that moved past familiarity and played itself out in coarse and foolish joking. When the elders saw it, they disciplined him. Certainly there's much that we don't know and are not being told. But what a wake-up call for pastors everywhere and really for all who are in the church. We all need brothers like Timothy next to us for real accountability. So two things hit me as I began to look at my own heart and my own situation as a pastor. Do I have that accountability and transparency that Paul had? Do all of us have that kind of accountability and transparency that Paul pursued? Timothy was one of his closest friends. He called him a son. Certainly he had great accountability with Timothy. Certainly he had great transparency with the church. Let's look at that. When you consider accountability, and this is something that is part of being part of the fellowship of Jesus Christ. It's part of being part of the body of Christ. We have fellowship one with another. That means our friendship is different. Paul always seemed to, to desire to be with a brother. He always was traveling with people. He always had support. And this, Paul says, was hugely helpful in all of his sufferings and hardships. 
but is also blessing spiritually, I'm sure, as he strove to beat his body into submission, as he said in 1 Corinthians 9, or as he struggled with sin, as he so aptly describes in Romans chapter 7, in his fight with the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, the pride of life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, certainly had, Satan certainly had a target on his back. And he always had men who were with him. We all should all pursue accountability in every area of life. I do want to pause and just tell you, my wife has full access to all of my devices, all of my, I have no private stuff. She can look at my phone, computer, text, emails as often as she wants, and she does it, not infrequently. I also have brothers in my own life who systematically and regularly hold me to a high standard of just purity. And I strive to guard myself against unnecessary temptation. But I also know that our brother, Matt Chandler, probably did a lot of these things as well. And but for the grace of God go I which is why it's a wake-up for all of us. We should all strive for accountability. The biggest reason we strive for accountability with others is because we love Jesus. He's the one who gives us a desire for fellowship, a desire for accountability with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You and your life should also have accountability. There should be no little secret gardens, nothing private that would cause you to sin or stumble or Lead others into some kind of stumbling. Prayerfully consider opening your life to another brother or sister. Indeed, it's a spectrum. Like, we should all have some level of accountability and fellowship with each other, all of us. But there's some that you're going to share more with than others. It's just the nature of friendship. But you should all have someone beside your husband or wife, beside your mom or dad, who you share life with. You need accountability. But Paul was also completely transparent. We see this even in in 2 Corinthians. Paul is transparent in his motives and everything he talks about in his ministry, his travels. In 1 Corinthians, we see that he's transparent about his struggles as a minister, his fear in ministering, his fear in preaching. And he encourages the same transparency in all Christians. Read Romans 7 if you don't believe me. This is Paul talking about his own sin struggle. It doesn't get any more raw or transparent than Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how scared he is to preach at the church in Corinth. He went with much trembling. In all of the writings of Paul, there's nothing but complete transparency with his church. He's not hiding things. He's not playing angles. He's not working secret issues or building little coalitions that will enable him to work better the way he wants to. Rather, he's just relying on Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile church where it seemed like people were playing by completely different rules. I think this is an example really for all of us. There's a part of us that is convinced that hiding things really is the best way. Like that's what our flesh will tell us. Well, nobody really needs to know this secret. Besides, I've got it all under control. There's, 
there's nothing really that would benefit the church if I told this thing to someone. It's not a big deal. But a lack of transparency like this is only going to enable that little secret thing to grow, to get bigger, and to get more deadly in your life and the life of your family and the life of the church. That's part of being part of the body of Christ is fellowship. It's an intimate relationship. It's sharing your life with someone else. To confess your sin with another brother or sister is good for your soul. And it helps deal with that prideful desire to appear perfect in everyone's eyes. If you have secrets in your life that you're not willing to share, you're, unba- you're embarrassed, probably, which is prideful, certainly. But the reality is that you think someone might actually find out that you also are a sinner saved by grace and still being sanctified every day. That's true for all of us. So you need transparency in your life. You need accountability. Without these things, brothers and sisters, you're going to fall and fail again and again. God doesn't call us to be lone rangers, to just hear a sermon and not tell anyone what's going on inside us and just try to work it out and then show back up the next Sunday or just read our Bibles and trust that it's all going to get better. We need to reject self-deception, hiding our sins, this Lone Ranger mentality. Reject it. Why? Paul did. He shared his life with his church, especially his closest brothers. I don't know whether Pastor Matt Chandler had anything that wasn't known to his wife or his elders or his children in all of his communications, but I think probably... Because if his wife and elders and children had known everything that was being said, it probably would have stopped before it got to this point. Did he have someone in his life like Timothy who knew the struggles, knew all of the heart problems? Do I have someone like that in my life? Yeah, I strive for that. I I run for accountability. I don't run from it. I run to it. You also should run to accountability with other brothers and sisters. For the glory of God and for the good of your own soul. We're all called to the same standard of holiness. You might be thinking, well... Pastors are held to a much higher standard. Actually, no, it's a Christian standard. It's the same standard for all of us. We're going to be subject to stricter judgment because when I fail, everyone is affected in a much greater way. But the standard is the same, brother, sister. So we should all be warned by this experience. I know that what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. Even in Brother Chandler's life, I'm sure he's being brought to a greater level of sanctification and love for Jesus and his gospel. That church is being sanctified. So it's not a time of despair for his church, just as it was not a time of despair for Paul and the church in Corinth. I do ask you to continue to lift me up, all the elders and deacons up in prayer, um, certainly I mean, I know a lot of pastors, 
probably a half dozen pastors, and I know them pretty closely, and I know probably one or two of them intimately. And our culture does kind of put a pastor on a pedestal like he doesn't sin, like he's not tempted. Let me tell you, every pastor sins. Every pastor is tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil like you. Which is why it's so important that pastors live transparently. You should as well. But I should as You should come to me. I'm inviting you. Come ask me anything. You got any questions? You want to know about my life? Ask me. I'm not going to hide anything from you. Why? It's like Paul said in Timothy. 1 Timothy 4. Everyone needs to see your progress, Pastor Timothy. Next year you should see me progressing in holiness more than now. And in 10 years I should be kind of a different person as God continues to sanctify me. Actually, you should be too. So my life is open to you. And you should be open with each other. I want to be with you, not put on some pedestal. Not that anyone does that, thankfully. But Christ was with his sheep, remember? He was the same person. He was talking to to Pilate. He was talking to a slave girl who was just delivered from demons. He was the same person. He didn't put on different masks for different situations. Everyone knew who Jesus was. We should be like that as well. Paul pushed for accountability in his own life. He strove to be transparent in his ministry. This is what the church of God should be doing as well. Anything less than this is a result of fear and pride. And there's actually great freedom in just becoming transparent and not hiding things. There's great freedom there. There's nothing else to prop yourself up on. There's nothing else to protect. It reminds me of my great-grandfather. I've told you the story before, but it just it left a mark on me. He got a brand-new pickup truck, drove it into their little dirt driveway in front of their farm, and he said to my dad, who he called Slugger, he said, Slugger, go get the ball-peen hammer. My dad's like, yes, sir. I'm like, you don't ask Grandpa questions. You just do it. Went and got it, and he took the big end of that hammer, and he just whacked the truck as hard as he could. My dad is just shocked. He said, what are you doing? He said, now I don't have anything to worry about. It's done. When you start sharing your life with other people, it relieves so much stress. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to protect. There's no skeletons in the closet that you have to make sure stay hidden. This is how Paul did ministry. This is how we're called to to live in this fellowship, this body of Christ. Again, I think this is just part of the ordinary means of grace that God uses to build you up. The Word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship with brothers and sisters. Finally, let's look at the church. Um, Paul's church. He says the letter is to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints. You are the church of God. You are saints, which means set apart ones. People who have been set apart. Peter puts it this way. He says to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 
called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peculiar people is the, the King James translation of a special chosen people. This is your driving identity. This is what defines you. You are saints. It doesn't mean you're perfect. And it's certainly not talking about saints in a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox way where if you're a super good Christian, they'll eventually start praying to you and setting up statues of you and burning incense and candles to you. Certainly Paul would be horrified by things like that. That's not what he means by saints. There's only one kind of saint, and that's a blood-bought, Christ-believing Christian person. And there's no super saints, there's just saints. We're all Christians, or we're not Christians. That's it. You're either saints or you're not. So being a saint has nothing to do with the quality of your service, and everything to do with the quality of the one who saved you. So the bottom line is you're a saint if you trust in Christ alone for salvation. This letter is to you. Paul says God had called him. Paul says he has good accountability. He mentions Timothy. He says Timothy is here with me, helping me in ministry. And this letter is for you, saints. So let's just conclude with a quick discussion about what it means to be set apart or sanctified. The word saint is the word translated holy in the Greek. It's the same. The same word that's used to call you saints is used to describe God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to consider. And fundamentally it means different or otherness. What are the angels crying out in heaven over and over and over again? Holy, holy, holy. It's the same word. So you've been set apart. You've been made holy. You've been called a saint by God. You've been set apart for a particular service. When Paul wrote this letter, there was a temple in Jerusalem. It was holy to God. It wasn't the only building in Jerusalem, but it was a special building. It was set apart for particular service. Now the temple of God is in you. You've been set apart for a particular service. You're an ambassador here on earth. You're a saint. We're citizens of another place. We're citizens of heaven. Why? Because we figured it out? No, of course not. God has caused the morning star to rise in your heart. That's what makes you holy. That's what gives you strength to work for God. This is what sets us apart from the world. When Paul calls the church saints, he's saying, you are set apart from the rest of the world by God. You are God's chosen people, a chosen generation, an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are special people chosen for God's own possession. When he calls you saint, he's made you his own. And you've been put together for accountability and support and for worship. This is a safe place not only to worship God, but to be in fellowship with one another because of the Spirit of God. We can be transparent as we do life together. We can be confident in our identity in Christ and in our calling as saints. We can be as confident as Paul 
Because the same spirit in Paul is the same spirit in you if you have faith in Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us saints. Those of us who know Jesus Christ have this knowledge not because of ourselves, but because you have called us to yourself. In spite of ourselves, you have brought us to you. You've given us each other. What a precious gift. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you've enabled us to be able to pray. We pray that you would draw us all to yourself in prayer, even this day, even in our prayer meeting later, Lord, that you would be glorified, that revival, great revival, would begin this day. Our Father in heaven, is this the day that you come for your church? Is this the day that you come to bring us home? We pray that we would be ready if it is. And if not, we pray that you give us strength to serve you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name.